0: Welcome to Boundaryless Leadership with Nozomi Morgan. The show where we explore leadership that transcends physical and psychological boundaries. Here's your host, Nozomi Morgan.
1: Welcome to Boundaryless Leadership Podcast. I'm your host Nozomi Morgan. We explore their journey of executives, leaders, and professionals to learn how they have become a boundaryless leader. Today, we have a special guest, Rob Ono. So, Rob, welcome to the podcast.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Nazomi. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, I appreciate you so much, Rob. So, Rob is currently the Senior Vice President, Head of International Tours and a member of the PGA Tour, uh, Tour's executive leadership team. You know, Rob, we met through the U.S.-Japan Council. And ever since we've met, I've just been fascinated with who you are as a human being and how, I don't to say how you've become this amazing person, but just really your journey. And I've known you for not too long, but I've read, you know, your bio, I've seen you not in person yet. We haven't met like in, in real person yet, but yeah, it's so, it's so interesting. So just for the listeners today, I'm learning about Rob with you. So I'll be asking a lot of questions as well. And I'm just so excited to hear about your personal story, Rob.
0: Well, you're very nice to say all those things. So thank you.
1: Oh, you're so, and this is another thing I love about you already is that you're so modest and humble and just, <laughs> and that's one thing personally, I find is especially who I call boundaryless leaders, I think is, is such a quality to really that humility that you have. Because I know you're a very important person in the role that you play. So let me ask the first question. So tell us a little bit about you. And like, really, I'll stop talking. Tell us about you.
0: <laughs>
1: tell us your life story.
0: Well, I um, was born and raised in Minnesota. So I've got a lot of Midwestern roots. I went to school on the East Coast and I was big into sports. So I played hockey, ice hockey through college and then had a chance to play for a year afterwards in Europe, which was an incredible experience for me to do that. And then I started getting into the working world. So I'd worked in consulting because I wanted to get to business school. I wanted to get to business school because I wanted to get this job called, it's a brand management role at a consumer products company, which I was able to do at General Mills. And then from there, I had done something a little different. I took a leave of absence early in my career so I could meet people specifically in the golf industry. And it was hard to meet people in the golf industry if you were working full time. So I actually got a leave of absence granted to really so I could network and meet people so I could maybe one day have a chance to break into the golf industry And, you know, one thing led to another and had some opportunities to jump into the golf industry. So I actually never went back to General Mills, but I've been in the golf industry now for the last 26 years. So it's been, it's been an amazing journey along the way. And it's just slowly brought me further South in the, in the U S so now I'm based here in Florida and I'm married, have two wonderful boys who both went to college that are out in the working world now but that's just a little bit about me.
1: Wow. I have so many so many comments, <laughs> so many questions and we have a couple of things in common. Number 1 is well you actually grew up in Minnesota, but I've also lived in Minnesota for a short two winters which felt like a long time for me. <laughs> but I just curious there's from my experience, there's not a lot of so-called Asians in Minnesota. And that was really shocking to me, to be honest, coming, you know, growing up in Japan, in my case, growing up in Japan, coming to the United States, I didn't realize, like, I've never, I never lived in the Midwest before that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and and very similar to another similar commonalities that we have. I went to school on the East coast as well, and we were kind of in the same region in that, <laughs> that area as too. So I just wonder, how was it for you growing up as an Asian little kid? in Minnesota.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've got a few thoughts swirling around in my head, so let's let's yeah. see if I can speak to these a little bit. First of all, where I grew up in Bloomington, Minnesota way back when, it, there actually was not a lot of diversity at the time. Minneapolis and the Twin Cities has become way more diverse even with various Asian groups over time, but when I was growing up, it was not very diverse. I had a lot of relatives and cousins, so I was interacting with them, but outside of that, there really wasn't that much diversity. So in a lot of ways, I was very proud of my heritage. I'm Japanese American, but in a lot of ways, everybody I saw around me was, you know, in essence, blonde hair, blue eyed. And so in some ways, just not seeing Asians a lot other than my relatives, you kind of felt like you were just one of the other people growing up in Minnesota with blonde hair, blue eyed. And so when people would make racial comments to me, for example, on the hockey rink or on the baseball field, sometimes it would actually take me a couple of seconds to figure out they were actually talking to me, only because like everybody else I saw around me was blonde hair, blue eyed. So that was one thing that was just, you know, a little different growing up in Minnesota. And it wasn't until I went to Harvard for college where I was exposed to so many Asians and just became a little bit more aware and conscious of my background just because I saw a lot more Asians around me. But it was interesting, I think through high school, I mean, I was, I was a pretty good athlete. I was a good student, but I was always known as the you know good Japanese hockey player or the good Japanese baseball player or the good Japanese soccer player. And I think in some ways in my childhood, I had this yearning of just wanting to be accepted for who I am and not necessarily because I was Japanese. So I had kind of these, kind of some conflicting thoughts, you know, when I was growing up. So in some ways, when I went to college, even though I grew up a lot of blonde hair, blue eyed people, I just had probably a deep yearning of just being accepted for who I was, not because I was, you know, had a Japanese background. But I think over time, over years, obviously I've, you know, become a lot more aware of my heritage and the culture and my upbringing. And I've just wanted, I've wanted to get more involved in the Japanese American community and the Asian community and wanting to figure out ways to give back and help those in that community and try to help Others, you know, become the best they can be, and and appreciate the heritage and the culture that you know that we had in that upbringing. So it's been kind of an evolving journey for me, but that's kind of how it started in this kind of non diverse area of Minnesota, and then kind of getting exposed to more Asians over time.
1: Yeah, that is so interesting, and I think, and this is why it's so fascinating, right? Even within the Japanese Americans, or, or between the two of you know within. Between us, we have a very different experience because of, even though we're, you know, so-called Japanese American, but we have a different upbringing, different history, different way we've, we, our family has gotten here to the United States. So our experiences are very, very, very different. And I think that's one thing that makes this, I say topic, but is uh, so important. And I'm so grateful that we're having these conversations is that you can't just lump us together. With you know, even as as Japanese Americans, like because I have a very different experience from you, and I just wonder, like when I went to Minnesota for, just like you said, even I was there between two thousand seven to two thousand nine, so probably much more diverse than when you grew up. But still, when I walked into, I I remember walking into the restaurant. I was (laughs) probably the only dark haired person, dark haired (laughs) and short. Like that was the other thing. Everyone's so tall but I really could feel, you know, it was the first time I've traveled all around the world and, you know, lived and lived and traveled in the United States, a lot of places, but that was the first time I really felt different. Like, oh my gosh, I'm the only person, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm Asian or not, that actually has dark hair. And it was just really shocking. And I I was
0: thinking, I was thinking when you said that, it reminded me the year after college, I went to Europe to play hockey. Mm-hmm. I was in an area of Germany that actually wasn't that diverse there. And so I would walk around with the dark hair, Asian looking. And I think for a lot of people in this community that I was living in, they had never seen an Asian person ever in their life. And so usually someone would look at you and if you notice them staring at you, they would typically people would turn away. But I remember that year, people would just stare at you for kind of minutes at a time.
1: <laughs> and then
0: I didn't speak Japanese. Then I, you know, I spoke English. So I'm yeah. this Asian guy speaking English. And then they, you know, I find out that I play ice hockey. Yeah. So I was just very confusing to them. But it was really uncomfortable for me that year in Germany initially, when people would just stare at you for minutes at a time. I mean, you became... He became pretty self-conscious, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes. And like on topic, but a little, talking a little slightly off of it, but so I had an, a different experience. This was not in Minnesota. This is somewhere in the Southeast where I was driving, but again, small town. And I remember I was in a gas station because I had to go to the bathroom, right? You <laughs> need to take those bio breaks. And again, yeah. I'm the only dark haired person. I definitely look out of place. And I do remember, you know, to your point, like someone staring at me because I I am out of place. Like, what is this person doing here? And I didn't feel like unsafe, but it's just like was really interesting. You know, once in a while, it kind of it just reminds you where you are, who you are. And I didn't take it as a negative experience. I just took it as it's just as a reminder. And the funniest thing was. So actually the person who was staring at me was a police officer and wherever I went, he was following, you know, not following me, but I could, he was always kind of in my sight. So he was looking at me. Right. And I went to the bathroom. I came out and then I left or I got out of the the store area of the gas station. And then the police officer followed me too. And the funniest thing is what he said to me was, oh my gosh, you have such beautiful hair. <laughs> <laughs> it was the craziest. So I don't know what that meant, to be yeah. honest, but it was the weirdest experience I've had. Yeah. So it's, there's a lot of interesting stories. And kind of going back to, I think it's important to just remember and remind them. And I always try to really be neutral with those experiences, unless it's something you really have an interaction and yeah. there's some kind of, you know, some kind of outcome to it. But whenever I go through those experiences, just kind of taking it neutrally and just remind myself, you know, there's, because how we take it is, is also our own filter and lens, right? Like,
0: yeah. cause
1: if, it, if someone else went through, they might have had a really good or bad
0: experience,
1: yeah. and it's all very personal. So yeah, but anyhow.
0: I was thinking actually, though, as you were talking, when I was living in Germany, you know, I was kind of like this outsider and I really appreciated some of the people that, you know, came to me and built relationships to kind of take me in or make sure I was okay. Cause I definitely felt like I wasn't really belonging where I was. And to feel a little on the outside isn't the most comfortable feeling. So, I just was very grateful for those that kind of went out of their way to make me feel comfortable. But it was one thing I learned from that experience, you know, that I've tried to take with me. is just that where you're in an environment and someone is new, whether it's a new colleague or a new neighbor or whoever it may be, you know, to try to go out of your way, at least mm-hmm. to welcome them, maybe have lunch with them. And you don't have to necessarily be there best friend or anything, but just to exhibit being, to welcome them into an environment that they don't really feel welcome. You know, it's really important to do that, to help, you know, accept people for who they are and kind of bring people in. And, and that's one thing I did learn from my experience over there that I did try to take with me.
1: Yeah. Wow. That is such a gift. And I really agree with you. That feeling of not being part of it, that you feel like you don't belong. It's such a, impacts you so much. And just, if there's just one person that cares for you that just, you know, ask you how you're doing or just takes you to some place or invites you to like their home or parties or gatherings, it makes such a huge difference. And then, yeah, that is so important. And there's such a lesson in there that we can do at any time, anywhere we are, even in today where we are, where we we live, where we work today. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Another thing that came up to me as you were just your short introduction that really just blew my mind was that you took a leave of absence to connect and to really meet golf people. And I would just say with the amazing career that you were having, you know, working at General Mills, which is such a well-known, huge company. And I could just, I just imagine people going like, how could he do that? Like, where did that courage come from? What, Yeah. yeah.
0: That's not probably, well, it's not typical. I don't think that people would do it kind of early on in their career. I don't think yeah. it's typical at all if someone with an Asian background. Right. <laughs> kind of quit a, you know, or take a leave of absence from a good paying job where you're doing well. And I have to say, I think when I brought it up with, I was kind of newly married. Wow. And talking with my wife about it, who was also working at General Mills. And then talking about it with her and then my parents, you know, they were... At first they were probably like, are you having a midlife crisis (laughs) early on in your life? But I think as, you know, I talked about it and just why I was passionate about just, you know, trying to break into the golf industry at some point in my career and the reasons why. And I mean, I applaud them for being so open-minded and supportive of it because it would have been really hard to do, you know, obviously if my wife or even my parents were just like totally against what I was doing. But I have to say, you know, after probably the initial shock, they were quite supportive of it. And I really, I worked hard during this time off in terms of trying to meet people. I actually did a consulting project at a golf course that I'm truly grateful for, for letting me kind of come in and kind of have some credibility for what I was trying to do. But, you know, meeting people and kind of selling yourself and trying to network, it's, you know, it's not always the easiest things to do. But I did, I got myself into a golf trade show that was strictly for people in the golf industry, and they were there to do business with one another. They are not there to meet people like me. But a friend got me into this trade show, and I literally walked around for about four days, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, walking around, introducing myself to different people at different companies. And I haven't done that very often. And I hope to not do it again uh, too (laughs) often, but it's, that's exhausting to be kind of on for four straight days, walking around on your feet and trying to get someone interested in you in about three minutes when they literally don't really want to talk to you. So it was, you know, that was an amazing experience in and of itself, but it was, you know, pretty, pretty terrifying really. But yeah, I did it. And honestly, through that experience, the people I met And through some of the other networking, I ended up meeting, I ended up having like three different opportunities to get into the golf industry. So I never actually went back to General Mills. And that's why I jumped over to the golf industry so soon. But it was because of just, you know, the people I met. And I think at the time, I just learned that, oh gosh, you know, kind of who you know and having relationships can actually be helpful and, you know, opening up doors for you. So yeah, that's what I ended up doing during that time. But thankfully I had some supportive people around me that helped encourage me throughout the way.
1: Yeah. So when did you know you wanted to have golf as like your career? Like what, yeah. when, when did it
0: happen? You know, I sound like I played golf all my life. I, I picked, I mean, I played a little bit when I was a kid, but I was playing another sports, So I didn't really have time for, for playing golf too seriously, but I think it was after college. After I stopped playing competitive sports, it was something I could do with my father at the time and obviously other friends. But I think it was the golf. It was a time where all these mega contracts were being signed by other athletes in other sports. And I found Mm. it so interesting because sometimes the player would get injured or not have a good season after that, but they were making all this money. And I just noticed in golf, technically, you weren't getting paid unless you played well. So it's like you'd have to play well to to actually get paid for that week. And so it was mer- more of this meritocracy that I was really intrigued with. And then golf, you called a rules infraction on yourself. Like every other sport, you can yeah. try to get away with as much as you can. And there's instances where players call a rules infraction on themselves and then they miss the cut. So then they don't get paid that week. Or they actually missed, they didn't win the golf tournament because they called a rules infraction on themselves. And, I was like, God, oh, that's just—it's so different than other sports. And then, the PGA Tour tries to give a lot of monies back to charities in you know wherever they play events. They try to give monies back to charities through their tournaments. And so it's just there was like these kind of differences or unique uniquenesses in the sport and in the industry. And I just became just really interested in why. You know what made them tick, and you know what made golf so different and and just got very passionate about what they were doing, so that's why I just and I played golf, but I wasn't getting into the industry just so I could play golf. It was just some uniquenesses about it that just intrigued me
1: Wow, that's fascinating by the way, I've never thought of golf that way i'm so <laughs> I've only seen it as like my father playing it for business reasons or what I call it, networking, you know, just kind of part of that businessman life. And I've always seen it more as, as a sport that for business rather than mm. like the true essence of it. And never yeah. thought about like, yeah, they don't have a judge, <laughs> right. you know, you're, you're <laughs> right. No one comes around and say, Hey, you know, that wasn't right. I guess yeah. maybe there are sometimes, but to your point, it's all about yourself and you're competing with your constantly competing with yourself. Yeah, And and that is something, yeah, I never, never realized that how, man, this is really deep.
0: <laughs> I will say, Nozomi though, like yeah. for golf, if you play golf with somebody and, you know, let's say you play f- with them for four hours, you learn so much about that person. It's almost like traveling with someone. Like you learn so yeah. much about that person. And so it is actually good for business and just even developing personal relationships, but you learn about you know is the person person somewhat ethical do they try to you know maybe try to get away with things a little yeah. bit more than you're supposed to are they thoughtful are they considerate or you know can they socialize i mean you learn so much about somebody when, actually when you play the game of golf together yeah it's really it's actually really revealing wow um so that i guess that is something else that's it's kind of unique about the sport
1: yeah Oh my gosh, this is just mind-blowing for me. <laughs> so in the work that we do with Boundaries Leadership, there is the core of it is the reason for being, and which is, actually comes directly from the Japanese philosophy of ikigai, which means reason for being. And what you're sharing with me is exactly that you knew what your, it feels like, I don't know if you knew at that time, but you knew why, you know, why I'm here. And that's, it really, to me, it sounds like that's what led you to this path in golf. Like, just like you said, it's not because you wanted to play more because you don't have to be in the industry to play more. Right. But so for you, if you would say, if someone asked you, why am I here, how would you answer that question?
0: You know, I think initially started of just combining a passion with a career. And I actually thought wow, that's just an amazing thing. And that's why I'm here at the PGA tour. But I think, you know, as I reflect back a little bit, just because I've been at the PGA tour now for over 23 years, you know, I met some people along the way that had a deep impact on my Christian faith. It was a player that actually passed away tragically, Payne Stewart in 1999. It led to a men's Bible study. I got invited to it. And I had always kind of grown up in a Christian environment, but that really kind of strengthened and deepened my faith. And I've built a very strong network of friendships and relationships with people. Even even now, I still stay in touch with on major things that go on in our lives. It's like truly amazing that this bond created, but it also just taught me a lot about myself and my outlook on others. But I think the other thing for me of just being at the PGA Tour is just having and trying to make an impact and make a difference in the world. So I'd mentioned that the PGA Tour, all of our tours try to give monies back to charities and the communities in which we play. And those charities count on these dollars to a lot of times operate in what they do and they're helping others. So that's really gratifying for, I think, everybody here at the PGA Tour. But I think it was also getting involved with some of these international tours that are development tours to help find and get players from all over the world to get them into our system and move them up and gradually play on the PGA Tour. And we did it at the tour to help diversify our membership over time. But what I've realized is that, wow, like this group that I work with, that works with our international tours we are part of making a huge impact in these players lives that want to pursue professional golf after they graduate in college and we're giving them a pathway to develop compete get better and eventually move up and it's been amazing to see so many players move up to the next level to the corn Ferry tour and then to the pga tour and do well And then they'll express gratitude to us and our staff for everything that we had done for them to help give them a chance to play after college and further develop them and give them a chance to move up and pursue something that they truly love. So just having an impact on those players' lives and then I think we're impacting really the future of the PGA Tour and kind of the makeup of the players and hopefully, you know, diversifying the membership over time, which, you know, the PGA Tour is trying to do. But I think just, you know, understanding if we can do something in our lives that can have an impact on others, which has led me to getting involved with other organizations like the USJC and the Asian Executive Network and getting involved on some nonprofit boards. It's like, geez, I have a chance to hopefully make a small impact in things that, you know, that we do. So I think that's been the other realization or gratifying thing that I've, you know, come to realize over time that, you know, hopefully your, your job can have a difference. You can make a difference and make an impact in some way, shape or form.
1: Wow. Oh, I got chills when you were just talking about that. Thank you so much, Rob. So question for you. We talked about what is on your mind the most lately. And you talked about, you know, why don't Asians typically rise up into the C-suite ranks, especially around like the bigger, like the Fortune 500 companies. And also, how can we best address that problem? What are your thoughts around that now?
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It just, over the past year, some people had shared some data and it said that in the U.S., Asians, Asian Americans represent 6% of the population, but they represent 12% 12% of the professional workforce. So it's like, oh, well, that's good. I mean, Asians are getting jobs and they seemingly are doing well. And then they shared that 1.5% of C suites in the Fortune 500 companies are Asians. So it's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Because it felt like Asians are kind of doing well in the professional workforce, but at the very top levels, Asians are very underrepresented. And so You know, it's just for me, I just became really intrigued with like, well, why is that? And there's probably a lot of reasons for it. Some people think that, you know, Asians are doing okay in the workforce. And I think a lot of them are. And but there are actually quite a few that aren't doing very well at all. And then there's a whole lot of Asians that aren't getting at all into that C-suite level. But the perception is, oh yeah, Asians are doing fine, aren't they? I think some people even just think Asians aren't even kind of a minority group. they're just you know they're just like anybody else, so you know we're just lumped in. But I think a couple things have come to light more recently of uh, there's kind of this massive culture gap of people with kind of Asian backgrounds and what I'll call the Anglo society. and that is Asians typically Nozomi have kind of grown up in this culture of work hard, go to a good school, you know, try to do the best you can, keep your head down, don't cause waves, you don't really build a lot of relationships, especially with your boss or your boss's boss. You, know, you don't really speak up too much in meetings unless you're called on because there's this ultra respect that Asians are taught to have for people above you. But in the Anglo society, like, you know, getting results is obviously important, but there's a huge people side of having influence and who, you know, and having relationships and letting others get to know you. And that's like including your boss and your boss's boss and your boss's boss's boss. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's just, you know, there's task forces. You have meetings with various levels in the Anglo society. And that's, you know, so kind of speaking up and sharing your opinion and building these relationships is super important. And those can lead you to further opportunities that you might not actually have. And I've seen it. I've witnessed it. And so, you know, there's just like this kind of a gap of how we're raised and what's also appreciated and valued in the Anglo society that leads, you know, some people further up the corporate ladder and and for a lot of Asian Americans, it just it prevents them. So, and we're just trying to share more knowledge about it. I think companies need to be more educated at the management level about, you know, what how other cultures operate. And that's just not Asian cultures. That should be all cultures of just bringing more awareness. But yeah, this culture gap is a huge, I think a huge factor a lot of times. And then the separate one is just kind of the unconscious bias of you know, just being comfortable with people that are more similar to you. And that's, you know, that's a whole nother process in education. And I think people want to do better. And I think companies want to embrace diversity. It's just, it's just going to take time. But we're trying to educate other Asian professionals about why this is. Because if they really want to be the best they can be, they need to understand some of the hurdles they may overcome at some point in their career. And I think some of the lessons we're trying to teach with Asian professionals is that, hey, there's something you can do about it too. I mean, you might need to step out of your comfort zone sometimes a little bit to build relationships with people above you and speaking up in meetings maybe a little bit more than you do. So I don't think it's just like executives have to change. I think Asians as professionals, we need to accept that we might need to change a little bit too, or just modify our behavior a little bit. But I'm, yeah, I'm very passionate about trying to spread the word that, yeah, there's kind of a problem there. And I think there's things that we can do about it. And I want to help be part of the solution. So we started a series called the Rise Series that we're just opening up to Asian professionals to just help them understand this problem more. So yeah, it's been on my mind, especially more that I've been more educated about the problem. And yeah, I definitely want to be a part of the solution, even if it's a small part.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I am so grateful there's there are people like you who are really out there. Like you said, you know, the more the better, like right? more voices, more people that are out there really advocating. And I totally went through the same the experience that you mentioned, you know, growing up in Japan. I was shocked. So when I after business school here in the US, I, I worked for an American company here in the US. And I was just really shocked. It was really hard for me to adjust. To seeing, you know, really entry-level, you know, young people asking questions to their bigger bosses, right? Speaking up in big meetings. Like that would never ever ever happen in Japan. <laughs> or, or at home. Right? right. So it was, it was very difficult for me the first year, second, thir- I mean, I'm still overcoming that. And I would say for myself that continuously is, is a challenge because it's so ingrained, like programmed deep into my DNAs for how many generations, I don't know. Right. So it's, it's really hard to get over that. And, you know, on top of that being kind of the female, like talking, you know, there's so much that we have to really work on. And I think to your point, the first step is the awareness and just knowing that actually we can make the difference. We can change that and not waiting for the whole society and the system to like rescue you is that really, even if it's, it's, it is uncomfortable, it's not the most, you know, fun thing to do, but one step at a time. And sometimes, you know, you, you fall miserably on your, but sometimes it works. And then you have people like you, Rob, who, who encourages you and helps you and shows you the way. And it is, you know, like you said, it's from both sides. It can't just wait for the executives and the companies, the society to change. We all you know, all of us needs to work towards it together. And then one last thing I would say is I really feel like a lot of kind of lumping all Asians together, but what I see is that we have, it's like we have a certain way of thinking and that has been really kind of in the box. And it's Mm. really hard to think about what do I I really want to do, Mm. not what we've been told or what we've seen, but truly what do I want to do? And that's why, why your star Rob is so fascinating that, you know, you had the support. Yes. But if you didn't have that seat in yourself and say, I want to do, I want to be in the golf industry. There's a lot of people I think that have that passion, but that do not do anything. Not mm. because they can't, right? Not because they physically can't just because they, I think, somewhere inside of them says, Oh, I, who am I to do this? Or I can't do this. And don't even take the action because they, they've never seen anyone do that.
0: Hmm. And
1: I think they even, and maybe they don't have the support, but I think a lot of times, even before that they say no to themselves. And I think Rob, you just show such a great example of when you actually take action. And like you said, you know, it's hard. It's not the, it's not easy. It's, you know, but it's something that you want to do. If you keep on going at it, something does open up, right? Like, and I think yeah. that's by you know sharing stories like yours. There's such a gift in that. So, thank you so much for for you being know, you.
0: <laughs> oh, thanks, Naomi. I appreciate it. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life too, but I will say, yeah, I think one thing. I mean, really, I've learned, and maybe I wish I would have known it earlier. It's mm-hmm. just, it's okay to take risks, and it's okay to fail. And I think sometimes, and again, I'll kind of lump Asians together because, you know, there's so much diversity within Asians, but sometimes Asians, you know, were raised to do well in school and not fail and, you know, be good at whatever you're doing. And, you know, what I've come to realize, it's like, yeah, sometimes you actually have to take a risk and sometimes you actually have to fail. Yeah. And if you're not doing that, if you're not failing, sometimes your goals are probably aren't, you know, probably aren't big enough. I remember a boss had told me as he was evaluating his team, he said, yeah, I would rather have someone have all these massive goals and they accomplish 75% of them during the year than someone who achieves all of their goals, but didn't really make very many big ones. And it just always stuck with me. It's just like, yeah, well, you know, you're probably not going to achieve everything that you want to do for that year, you know, or whatever that time span is. And it's and it's okay to fail. And that's probably the way you're gonna learn and get better is by you know going through those failures. And that's actually another one thing that, that golf teaches you. Think about it. 156 people play typically every week on the PJ tour, and only there's only one winner. Most players they don't win very often. And a player had said one time, if you're, you know, it's like the phrase is if you're not a winner, you're a loser. But he viewed it as if you're not winning, you better be learning. Yeah. You know, so if you're not a winner, you better be a learner. And I just, that's another thing that just always kind of stuck with me. It's just whatever you're doing, try to learn from something from it, but it's from the failures. We probably learn the most, yeah. even, though even though they're quite painful.
1: Yes. Oh, I love what you said. And that's definitely like a tweetable moment. I would say everyone <laughs> tweet, tweet <laughs> would be, I, I'm so with you, right? The only way you can learn really is to do something, and then you learn from that. It might be a mistake, a failure, you know, you get hurt, you scrape your knees, you might break your bones once in a while, but that's how you learn. And if you're not making those mistakes, I'm with you. I think that also means you're not learning. You're really staying in that safe place, what you know, and what you know, and you'll know what the outcome looks like. But then that's just the same old, same old. And I think a lot of people stay in that comfort zone, so called comfort zone, and that really. If you're not, yeah, if you're not taking those risks, if you're not moving forward, if you're not feeling challenged or feeling scared and all that, like, oh, kind of feeling, you know, you're not really learning anything new. Yeah.
0: I mean, you're obviously very good at what you do. You're very conversant and, you know, articulate. But I was thinking a lot of times in our workplaces, if you're doing a presentation or if you have a chance to speak or give a speech or address a crowd, like the first time or two that you do it, like you probably, you know, you probably make a bunch of mistakes and you're probably not as good as it back then as you would be as if you, you know, do it a, a several times. And I just remember like when I was presenting through work, like I was so nervous. You don't want to make a mistake. And you just realize, you know what? I just have to, I have to be prepared. I have to do the best I can. But you know what? It's, I'm not a failure if it doesn't go well. You know, and if I can learn something from it and then do better the next time. And, you know, I think I've tried to learn that as a leader. It's like, you know, there's times when, you know, you have to be provide constructive feedback. But, you know, a lot of times you have to be encouraging and supportive and, you know, provide hope that, you know, they'll do better the next time. And people are probably their hardest on themselves, really. And so just know that, yeah, you know what? People are probably going to make some mistakes along the way to, yeah. you know, just like I did. And, you know, just be a little bit more empathetic. And yes. I think that's something I've learned probably over time, a little bit more the hard way, you know, <laughs> when you're trying to manage people or lead people.
1: Yeah. But just
0: that realization is important, I think.
1: I'm with you. That reminded me of something my boss, actually, not my, my colleague told me we were late for a client meeting and my team member, she was late. And I was upset, right? Because this is a client meeting. And I was like, why were you late? And then my colleague in a different department was like, you know, don't do that, right? Like she already knows, she's already feeling bad that she's late. It's not like she doesn't know that she's late. And that was a huge lesson for me. Just like you said, you know, Hmm. the most, like you're hardest on yourself. She's already beating herself up inside. And why would, you know, myself as a person who manages her, like there's really no point of, beating her up more. The only thing I can do is really support her and help her to not make the same mistake or, or to your point, learn something from that. Or if there's something, if there's a reason why that keeps on happening, like really supporting her through that. And that was, it's such a small thing, like just, you know, being late for a meeting, but that was such a, such a huge learning moment for me when I was first, you know, being a manager of a team. And I'm so grateful for that colleague who said that to me.
0: That's neat. That's really neat. I mean, it's just, I think your colleague was showing that, you know, you need to show that you care about that person and not just, you know, be cracking the whip on that person for, for everything that they, you know, don't do right. But I heard a quote from, it was actually a woman's golf coach at Stanford. She said a quote in a documentary that just stuck with me. It was something like, your team doesn't care what you know until they know that you care. And it was just, it was so interesting to me because I always think as a leader, it's like, you should know everything, you should be competent, you should know where you're going, you should be directing. And this person was basically saying like, yeah, you can kind of throw all that out the window if you don't show that you care about your team and if you're, or the people, and if you're sincere, you know, about your interest in them. And that's something also, it's like, yeah, I've had to, you know, learn that one kind of the hard way too. But you have to kind of show you're invested, you know, in your team and in your people to try to get the most, you know, to get the most out of them and to get them to maybe even listen to you a little bit more. So I just, I found that quote just so, just so interesting. Love
1: it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Oh my gosh. There's so much, Rob. I would love to talk to you again. Well, we'll still talk, but I would love to have you as a guest again. There's so much So much wisdom. There's just so much in what you share and so much love and empathy. And I feel like there's so much more that the listeners, the audience will love to hear. But for today, we do need to wrap up. Is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up?
0: You know, the only thing I was thinking about, Nuzomi, as we were talking, is you know, just different leadership qualities that you, you know, people have. And, you know, the one thing to keep in mind is your leadership style just continues to evolve and change. And sometimes I feel like people kind of paint themselves into a corner of this is how I am and this is how I lead. And I think people, you know, we learn from our experiences and your leadership style can change and really should evolve over time as your environments change. And so I just try to encourage people that, you know, to keep trying to improve, keep trying to learn. And just know that your leadership style can change over time. So that's what I'll leave the listeners with.
1: Oh, wonderful. Thank you for that. So what would be the best way for the listeners to get in touch with you, Rob?
0: Oh, geez. If anybody wants to get in touch, I'd love to hear from them or interact with them. They can just get in touch with me through LinkedIn. I'm probably the only Rob Ono on LinkedIn. Especially the only Rob Ono that works at the PGA Tour. So, yeah, if people want to, I'd certainly love to hear from them. Um, they can connect with me through LinkedIn.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for offering that. Everyone, thank you very, very much for joining and listening to this episode. Take this opportunity to explore your own boundaryless leadership.
0: Thank you for listening to Boundaryless list Leadership with Nozomi Morgan. Be sure to check the show notes for information regarding today's guest and to email Nozomi directly. Join us next week for another episode.